It's alive. It's alive. Can you hear me? It can't be saved. It's gotta die. It's alive. It's alive. Why are you so anxious to be the one to do it? It's alive. It's alive. Now, nobody knows how this thing happened. It, it's really a matter of speculation, and I think perhaps that's for the best. After all, if we find out that the cause is medication that we manufacture, and it was administered over long periods of time, well, it... What do your interests recommend? Absolute destruction of this thing. It went down the storm drains. That's how it can travel the length of the city without anybody seeing it. Don't touch me. Don't you touch me. They stole my baby. Did you see it? Did you see it? What does it look like? What are you Get those of? cameras out of my face, please. I got no comment. I had nothing to do with this. Will you get that thing out of my face? Get out of the way! He could have killed you. You know why he didn't? You know why he didn't kill you? You've never been exposed to radioactivity in radioactive material or undergone extensive x-rays. No, Doctor, I told you. Can't rule out to genetic damage. My department has already cautioned the police about excessive violence. If it could be dispatched with a bullet, or, or better still, some kind of a gas. Undoubtedly, it is very small, and any kind of bodily harm, especially from gunshots or, or explosives. In other words, you want me uh, to sign away the body, is that it? Well, it's your right. After all, you are the child's father. everybody it's the return of the film and water podcast proud member of the fire and water podcast network i'm your host rob kelly and joining me for this halloween horror drive-in double feature is fellow network all-star and my pal max romero hi max hello rob i am deliriously happy to be here i thank you i i am really excited i will tell everybody this was max's idea max uh, wrote to me a while ago and said, hey, you know, have you thought about doing anything for Halloween? And I, I really kind of hadn't because the Film & Water podcast had been dormant for a little while while I was doing a MASH Season 2. And, of course, uh, the Halloween horror sort of corner is covered by our friends Chris and Cindy Franklin over on Supermates Podcast, The House in Frankenstein. 
But uh, I, I like the idea that the, I like the idea that you had Max, which was, which was to talk about kind of like really Z grade <laughs> grind bin kind of movie driving kind of things. And 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 I actually not only was that stuff fun to talk about, and and I was always, always eager to talk to you, and and I was happy to bring the Film and Water podcast back. But also, I thought thematically it sort of worked in that you know over on House of Frankenstein, Chris and Cindy do a masterful job of of sort of you know, cornering the Halloween market on the network. But the films that they cover tend to be more on the kind of A level, you know, they've got big stars. Mm -hmm. They've got Vincent Price and Jack Nicholson and Johnny Depp. And, you know, there's stuff that you would see in a theater. Meanwhile, the stuff you and I are going to (laughs) cover is is the kind of stuff that was, you know, down the street playing at, you know, slightly (laughs) seedier theaters because this stuff was a little more on the raunchy side. And so I thought not only are the films that Chris and Cindy carry are kind of the more classy versions of what we're going to talk about, so is kind of the theaters where you would see these sorts of movies. So I thought it lined up perfectly uh, that we're here to talk about two kind of really grind bin movies. And so why don't we get into what we're here to talk about? First of all, we're going to be discussing 1974's It's Alive, uh, written and directed and produced by Larry Cohen. And then we're going to follow it up with 1973's Invasion of the B-Girls, which is <laughs> as fun as its title. Um, but I, before we get into the movies, Max, I want to ask you, you know, like, did you ever go? Have you ever been to a drive-in? Have you ever seen oh. movies at drive-ins? Oh yeah. Well, okay. So when I grew up in El Paso, the uh, the neighborhood I was in was semi-rural, and when we moved into our house, one of the most amazing things about it was that two blocks away was a drive-in theater. The, two the, blocks. The Bron- yeah, the the Bronco Drive-in Theater. <laughs> Great name. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and the Bronco is still there. Now it's a flea market now. But yeah, and um, there was the Escarate, um Drive-In Theater, which lasted, I think, I want to say, until the early '90s, maybe. And uh, there was the Fiesta Drive-In Theater, which at that point had already become a porn theater. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, we used to go to. Um, we we went many times, uh, especially to the Scottish one, because the the one that was near my house was already kind of in the process of being torn down. Even though there were nights I could go into my backyard and kind of see a corner of one of the <laughs> one of the screens, <laughs> so, which was pretty awesome. But um, so yeah, and the last thing I remember seeing in the theater actually was um, I don't remember which one it was, but it was one of the missing in action movies. Oh God. And and maybe Jim Cotta? Something like <laughs> something like that. Fantastic. Yeah. And uh me and a friend of mine, uh Saul, who was a uh friend of the family, uh he had just emigrated from uh from Mexico and and he loved the drive in theater. And so we went and we actually stayed because in you know, you used to be able to stay in the drive in theater until dawn if you sure, wanted. Right. And uh, so that's what we did. We stayed there. I mean, we, we watched these two terrible movies, you know, a couple of times at least until the sun came up. Wow. Well, that we could really appreciate the subtlety of Jim Cotta, you know, like all, the, <laughs> all the all the themes, all the you know. You need you need to make sure it's coming through a very tinny speaker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How else to appreciate the <laughs> kicking of the things? Wow. That's am- that's amazing. I mean, that's really cool. I mean, I I saw a couple. The first movie I can ever remember being taken to when I was a kid, uh, when I was five, my parents took me to see The Omen, 
Uh, and uh, they couldn't get a babysitter. Uh, so they took me to see the omen at a drive, and I still remember the scene, the kid on the little tricycle knocking Lee Remick off the table. Uh, I remember I saw Star Trek three at a drive-in. And then, I, funnily enough, since the last film in water that I did, which was the Ed Wood audio commentary with uh, David S. Gutierrez, I have been to a drive-in again. Uh, there, there is there is one drive-in theater left in New Jersey, and it's called the Delcy Drive-In in Vineland, New Jersey, which is a little bit south of here, but not too terribly far. So uh, my better half, uh, Kelly, decided we should we should go see a movie at a drive-in, and so we went and took a trip on a Saturday night or a Friday night, and we went to go see Ready or Not, um, which oh. was which was <laughs> actually a really good movie. I really enjoyed that movie, but yeah. it was it was a fun experience. I mean, of course, you you don't have the little tinny speakers anymore. You pump it in through your your radio. Uh, but, uh, but it was, it was a blast. Like it was fun seeing a movie in that, in that format again. I mean, it's, it really is, of course, is a completely retro thing. And, and, you know, obviously, uh, this, you know, you're looking at through the, through your, your windshield and there's people parked, right? You know, it, it's certainly an old school kind of thing and it has its own yeah. trumps, but it was, it was great to have that experience again. So it was sort of funny that we're talking about drive-ins right at the point where I happen to go to a drive-in again. It's just that that is awesome. Yeah. No. And like you're talking about windshields. I remember because we used to go with my family also. And, uh, my dad always made a big deal about cleaning the windshield <laughs> before we went because you know, he wanted to have a good view. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, it was good. It's a, uh, it said it's kind of a lost start, you know? I mean, it's just, I think people of a certain generation are just like, what? Why would you go see a movie like that? You know, it seems baffling, but, but it, you know. But it is fun. It is It is a lot of fun. I don't, there's something about it. Yeah, it's, it was very kind of communal, I have to say. It was a little more, and, you know, more than seeing, sometimes seeing things in a the theater and stuff like that. And you know what? I guess I'll, I, let me, I can, I'll just tell this story. Um, we were there, and as I said, they pumped the, the sound over, uh, your radio, they don't, you know, it's not a speaker anymore, although this place still has the poles. Um, mm. but, but we pumped it into the, the radio and for, for us to get the radio, we had to have the car on. So we left oh. the, we left the, the car running, not the, not full on, like with the muffler going, but like the car was on throughout the movie. And then, uh, we, the movie ends and, uh, we, uh, we decide to leave and the engine is dead because of course yeah. we've had the car on this whole time and it didn't occur <laughs> to either Kelly or I, that you really, that the car was on to that level. We're, I don't know. I'm dumb. I didn't know. That. I couldn't figure that out. So anyway, the, the engine's dead and we're like, Oh my God, what are we going to do? I'm like, I have triple a, but how they're going to get a truck in here. Oh, you know, <laughs> you know, it just becomes this whole thing. And, uh, I guess the guy in the car next to us saw us looking panicked and he rolls down a window and he's like, uh, are you guys staying for the second movie? Cause there was a double feature and we said, no, we're not. And we said, our, our battery's dead. And he goes, Oh, hold on one second. He goes, do you have jumper cables? And Kelly was like, yeah, we do. And he says, Oh, I can give you a jump. We're like, Oh, great. So as we're getting out, a second guy comes over with a little portable battery and he mm-hmm. says, "Do you guys need a, a do you guys need a jump?" And we're like, "Yeah." So he and it's one of those ones. It's like a self-contained unit. So he just comes over and sticks it on the, the thing, and it doesn't work. And then while he's doing it, another guy comes over with like the Mondo version oh, wow. of, of the like it was like huge, like something Jack Kirby <laughs> would have designed, and all these you know, intricate things. But, and he goes, "Let me let me do it." And he goes, "Boom, boom, boom," and starts the car immediately. And we were so wow. thank we were like, "Thank you, thank you." And there's the guy was like, "Oh, no problem." And like the fact that we didn't even really have to ask for help, people just offered it, yeah. 
it made us feel we 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 left the theater feeling so good about humanity that it was like oh <laughs> clearly we're not the first idiots to let this happen at the drive-in and people were ready and it was it was just really sweet so it was like a really good experience to to go and see first of all again the movie was actually really good which helped but that whole thing really made it like a really nice experience and we took a photo of the two of us in front of the marquee uh oh. we wanted to get so it was great it was really great oh, oh that's nice yeah really nice it was cool stuff so yeah i i would we might go back to the delcy driving especially if uh, they were showing something as fun Nice segue here. Uh, as It's Alive, Larry Cohen's movie. So, Max, this was your pick. So why don't you describe yeah. to everybody the plot of Larry Cohen's It's Alive. Oh, goodness. Okay. This is, uh, as you mentioned before, 1974's It's Alive. Uh, first released in 1974, but very limited screens. I believe it was only one screen in Chicago. <laughs> and uh, then re-released in 1977, which is why I actually remember seeing this in the theater. Late one night in Los Angeles, Frank Davis, played by John Ryan, is woken by his pregnant wife, Lenore, Sharon Farrell. The contractions have started, and it's time for Lenore to give birth to the couple's second child. After taking their son, Chris, played by Daniel Halsman, to stay with family friend Charlie, Frank and Lenore cheerfully head for the hospital. Once there, things seem to be going normally, in spite of Lenore's growing sense that something is wrong. While Frank shoots the breeze in the waiting room with the other expected fathers, hello, 1970s, <laughs> the pediatrician discovers that the baby is huge, at least 10, maybe 11 pounds, with a, quote, gigantic head. Lenore's screams don't make it to the waiting room, but Frank still manages to be in the hall when a doctor stumbles out of the operating room, collapsing on the floor, blood pouring out of huge gashes in his neck. In the OR, Frank finds bodies piled up, all slashed to death as if torn apart by a wild animal. The only survivor is Lenore, who is still strapped to the table and screaming in desperation. The baby is missing. A professor contacted by the hospital, why, I don't know, and police officer Lieutenant Perkins quickly put it together that the baby is a killer mutant that must be hunted down. The professor wants the baby for research. The police just want it dead. Frank is remarkably understanding about the whole thing and goes home to rest. Meanwhile, the mutant killer baby is on the run and has a natural talent for both murder and getting around. Soon enough, the baby is using its fangs and claws to kill neighbors, milkmen, and anyone else who crosses its path. Later that night, Lenore comes home and her attitude quickly goes from exhausted to cagey. For his part, Frank has already given up on the baby, saying the mutant is no flesh and blood of his to anyone who will listen. Along the way, hints are dropped about what could have caused the mutation. One of the expected fathers, an exterminator, told Frank that a story about cockroaches building up an immunity to poisons. And Lenore's doctor is later visited by a representative from the pharmaceutical company that makes the birth control pills she took for years before. They're not saying the pills caused the mutation, but they're not saying it didn't either. For everyone's benefit, the man says, the baby must be destroyed completely. As another day drags on, Frank starts to crack under the pressure, comparing himself to Dr. Frankenstein, but still denying any familial connection to the baby. He's lost his job with a public relations company, so he's home to intercept a late-night call from the police. The baby has been cornered in a local school. Coincidentally, the same school their son Chris goes to. Frank rushes over, but his mutant son avoids capture while also managing to kill an officer on his way out. Back home, Frank notices five empty milk bottles in a fridge that's been completely cleaned out. Lenore says she doesn't know what he's talking about, but it's soon revealed that she's been caring for the mutant baby, who's been, which she's been hiding in the basement. At the same time, the couple's older son, Chris, has run away from their friend Charlie's house and, for some reason, enters the house through the basement. In, spin, in spite of finding the mutilated carcass of the family cat, Chris approaches his little brother, telling him that he'll protect him. Suddenly, Frank bursts in with a pistol and starts shooting. Wounded the melon-headed baby. That's the mutant baby, not 
Chris. Charlie, who followed... <laughs> Charlie, who followed Chris into the basement, is killed by the mutant. A massive police manhunt for the baby leads to the L.A. River and the sewers. The police, realizing Frank wants to kill the mutant baby himself, gives him a rifle. As the police fan out in the tunnels, Frank wanders off by himself until he hears the screeching cry of his baby. Finding the mutant killer, Frank is suddenly overcome by fatherly love. He bundles the baby in his coat and runs for it, trying to avoid the police. Reaching the street, Frank is confronted by the cops who tell him to let them kill the baby. But Frank, desperate, throws the baby... <laughs> Sorry, that just makes me laugh. Throws the baby at an officer whose throat is quickly torn apart by the mutant slashing fangs. Terrified, the rest of the police begin shooting, pumping lead into the already dead cop and the screaming, mutated baby. Lenore, who was brought to the scene by other officers, witnesses the entire thing. Stunned, the couple climb into a police car with Lieutenant Perkins and the professor. As they begin to drive away, Perkins gets a call. Another one has been born in Seattle. And that's the end of It's Alive. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Cue up that great Bernard Herman score. Yeah. And obviously it was set up for uh, a sequel, of which there were two. It Lives Again, which was released in 1978, and It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive in 1987. And then this, this movie itself was remade in 2009? 2009. 2009. 2009. Yeah, yeah, it's even a remake. So, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'm going to get my first – okay. I saw this movie. I saw this movie about 25 years ago. I watched it back when I worked at the Movies Unlimited, and this was one of the thousands of movies mm. I took in during that time. I, it didn't leave a whole lot of a, much of an impression with me, so I was uh, happy to rewatch it again for for the show. So when I did, I came away from this with a kind of very strange reaction, and I'm curious to know like wh- what your thoughts were about picking it. Uh, in that. For a for a low rent monster movie, and it's actually not as low rent as you might think, because I mentioned it's got like a Bernard Harmon Bernard Bernard I can't say his name. It's got a Bernard Herman score, and it's from Warner Brothers. Like this is an mm-hmm. actual studio movie. Um, but I actually found that the monster sequences were, in my opinion, the weakest part of this movie. Uh, and I liked all the character stuff. Uh, which I, is in yeah. usually monster movies, it's the other way around. You're kind of like, you know, ah, talk, 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 talk. Let's let the monster kill somebody. <laughs> but every time, I mean, I think there's something, I think Larry Cohen, who wrote, produced, and directed this movie, just like right. Orson Welles, um, <laughs> I, I think he realized just that, like, like Orson just Welles. like Orson Welles, there's only two people to do it me and Orson Welles. Um, <laughs> I, but, but I really think Larry Cohen knew inherently that you can't show a baby killing someone without it looking goofy because it's a baby right you know right. even even if it is a giant mutant headed baby with point paste you know pointy teeth <laughs> it, it, it's just not that it's just weird looking and so i think he knew to yeah. kind of sideline that and make the movie more about the 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 social you know issue which is about you know what's causing the mutations and what's and how does society react to uh, this thing that it, you know, sort of it has indirectly given birth to. And so that's all the stuff I really like. So this movie had a lot more kind of to it than I remembered it. And I was so happy to watch it because I, I really liked this movie. <laughs> I, I love this movie. And part of it is because it scarred me as a seven-year-old child. And <laughs> It's always good. Yeah. So, you know, a, a lot of what you mentioned, you know, yeah, you cannot show even a, a horribly disfigured mutant baby attacking people because it just it looks like the rabbit from monty python yeah right exactly yeah it's just this you know little thing zipping up and biting someone in the neck and uh what's he do nibble your bum (laughs) (laughs) and 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 larry cohen you know did a really good 
thing in the entire movie. I mean, you see this in monster movies where they kind of hide the monster until the very end. But you never, ever get a good look at the baby. No. No, you don't. And and that is for the better because some of the – when you do see it, there are parts where you're already kind of going, well, that looks obviously fake and just kind of weird. And it's it's a good idea to keep that in the shadows. But, you know, two things. Yeah, I think the character work is is really, really good. And John Ryan as the father, as Frank Davis – Acts the hell out of this movie. He's he's really good in this. He really he, is. He, yeah, he is not phoning it in at all. And um, and also in a weird way, this movie reminds me of your. And this is people are going to give me crap for this. It actually reminds me of Godzilla. Oh, <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. The reason it reminds me of Godzilla because I think it really kind of taps into some of the fears that people had at the time, in the same way that Godzilla uh, tapped into the fears of, of the, the the growing atomic age and and the reaction to the, to uh, the atomic bomb uh, during World War II that sort of thing. People, I remember being a child and still hearing about thalidomide babies. Yeah, that that's you know. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, no, I no, thought about that. No, I did that. I thought that same thing because when and I looked it up. I thought, oh well, the thal- the thalidomide thing. Which, by the way, for anyone listening mm-hmm. that doesn't know what that is, that was a birth control. It wasn't birth control. It was a what was it? it was a it was some sort of medication that right. pregnant mothers were given, and they were told right. it was completely safe. And then they found out that it was causing, um, at at the very least, birth, hideous birth defects, and right. in some cases, outright death of the child but that i thought that took place not that long before i was born which would have been in the 70s but this was that took place in the 50s uh and it was all and yet yeah and yet it was still very much on people's minds as of the 1970s so that's sort of funny i thought wow that that was a lot further in the past compared to me than i thought it was but i mean that's how loom that's how large that shadow loomed is that in the mm-hmm. 70s that was still a thing i remember parents yeah. talking about it in the 70s yeah exactly and then i i had the same reaction i thought oh that must have been like late 60s early 70s when that was happening because it was still so um talked it was still talked about like something that was current and i guess in a way it was because they still had, were talking to you know pe- parents who were having children with these horrible uh birth defects and, and um, but yeah, but it was it was at least you know ten fifteen years you know fifteen twenty years before that yeah and but yeah you know so I I don't know if you know and then it, that's what it made me think of it, the movie made me think of those fears of you know of because you know they tell the doctor tells the wife well the the doctor and the and the pharmaceutical representative are talking and saying we know well we don't know if it's the you know we're not saying that it's the the birth control that she was on and then off and then they put her on uh, some sort of fertility drugs. You know, they're saying we don't know if that's what what caused it, but we want to make sure that no one can find out that if that's the cause. And you know, that totally made me think of of uh, the scare. Well, not the scare, but the the health problem with the uh, with thalidomide. And just at the time, you know, there was so much stuff. There was so much going on with pharmaceuticals and you know medicines and and that sort of thing. And I can see that being kind of in the air at yeah. that at that time. And that's and yeah, and that's and that's why it reminds me of Godzilla. <laughs> that makes total sense. Yeah, no, no, completely. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, 
I when I was again when I was watching it and I was I was really taken by how sort of leisurely paced it is for a ninety minute movie. Mm-hmm. In that the the whole the big scene where the baby's born and it tears through the doctors like a hot knife through butter. Yeah. That takes that that's like fifteen minutes into this film. And for a mm-hmm. for a ninety minute monster movie, you know, I think a lot of other films would jump right to the action a lot quicker. But they really do try. Larry Cohen really does try and establish these characters. And as you mentioned, John P. Ryan, man, he's really terrific in this movie. And this is not a guy that really got a chance to be the lead in most movies. Right. Uh, he was almost always a character actor. I mean, some of his credits include he was a voice in Batman Mask of the Phantasm. He was in The Right Stuff, Bound, Hoffa, The Cotton Club, The King of Marvin Gardens. Uh, he played wow. a character called Colonel Hardcore, which was my nickname in high school in the movie, uh, the movie Seamus. Uh, he's in a movie called, and I'm only mentioning it because it, it plays into something later. He was in a black exploitation movie called The Legend of N Word Charlie. Oh my gosh. Uh, the, yeah, the, 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 you know the title is not N Word, by the way. Yeah, yeah, you can figure that out. He was in wow. the, he was in the Missouri Breaks with Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson. Uh, and he was the star in It Lives Again. So he comes back mm-hmm. for the second film. And he, of course, I have to mention this for all any actors that cross my path that have a MASH connection. He was in season 10 of MASH. He was in an episode of a, of a guy that uh, gets involved in, a, in Hawkeye in one of his n- nutty schemes. Uh, oh, wow. but, uh, but that's sort of what I recognize. But he's really good in this movie. He really, really is. And, is. and, and you know, I guess – Larry Cohen probably couldn't get a big star for something kind of low budget like this. So they have to get somebody that that's not a name, but yeah, I mean, Larry, I mean, uh, but, but John Ryan really, really brings it. I mean, for, for what an absurd situation this is. Um, (laughs) But I like how tortured he is that it's like he, this is his son. This is his, you know, his progeny. It's part of him. And yet he has to accept the fact that this thing it's it it just ha- it has to be killed because it's it's a it's a it's a it's on a murderous rampage. I mean, the first scene that we see in the the in the in the in the uh, the OR. I mean, good lord, the the baby has just gotten out of the mother and it's killed what yeah. like six people already, and yeah. not even just killed them, like ripped their throats out. We see that on the door. There's, there's like a bloody. There's a blood spurt on the door. I mean, this thing is oh, just there's like, blood everywhere. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> And that that's the scene that like obviously just kind of like burned itself into my into my brain it, because it is it is horrifying. And I think that's another interesting thing that this movie does. And, you know, and I, I don't want to elevate this this movie <laughs> higher than it should go. No, it's a B movie. It's a, it's B, a, B, it's movie. a B movie monster movie. It, no it's, doubt a about so, it. it's a solid B movie. Yeah. But the but, you know, it it is in a sense, almost this body horror of what women go through with pregnancy and giving birth and, you know, and all that sort of thing. And this is like the worst fever dream that that you could have surrounding uh, being pregnant and and giving birth because it is just, you know, when, when those doors open to that, uh, that operating room, it is a bloodbath. I mean, it is just, you know, it's, it's sauce everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that. Like this is, of course, the 1970s because it's 
you know, the movie opens with him and his wife. Uh, you mentioned Sharon Farrell, by the way. Sharon Farrell, a bunch has a bunch of credits. Night of the Comet. She was on Young and the Restless for months a year. She's in a great movie called The Stunt Man with Peter O'Toole. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's in a movie called Marlowe. One of her IMDb fun facts had an affair with Steve McQueen. So oh, okay, well, there you go. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, but but it, when they go to the hospital, right, and she is screaming in agony because she's in labor. And she's, you know, she's gritting her teeth and she's, Aah! and then that's when her husband's like, okay, well, I'll see you later. And he leaves, you know, and you're like, <laughs> I mean, looking at it from a 2019 perspective, you're like, wait, what? Like, you're just going to leave your wife? And, but it was like, well, this isn't any of my business. I'm going to go yeah. wait here in the, uh, and then the scene in the, the waiting room with the three other guys, which is again, like oh, right yeah. something yeah. out of Mad Men is really interesting. The way that these guys relate to one another. And the one, that's when it starts gets layered in about the. The the the, uh, the drugs they how to kill the bugs and like you know the guy the the one exterminator guys like it doesn't kill the bugs it just makes them stronger and we're poisoning right. ourselves and so I mean all of that thematic stuff is laid in at that point but that's it's a really good scene of these four actors these four guys kind of talking it's like a locker room almost where it's like these are mm-hmm. what guys talk about when they're not you know when no one there's no women around and they're just you know they're all in the same situation and that's all a really good scene and again it's very unhurried. It just like Larry Cohen lets it sort of play out kind of naturally, and it's like it just tonally doesn't seem like the kind of movie that you know one from the from the logline is about a killer baby that attacks people. Right? Yeah, yeah, and I would agree. And I could see modern audiences being frustrated by that kind of scene because, like you said, it does take its time and it's yeah. very organic. You know, the the conversation kind of meanders almost, and it's really and it's probably shocking for for people of a younger generation also because you know it is you know four or five guys. Shooting the breeze in a in a waiting room, smoking cigarettes in a hospital, <laughs> and um, and playing poker. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know? yeah. While while complaining, you know, I mean, half heartedly, but complaining that you know their wives have been in there for so long. <laughs> so so yeah, it is it is an interesting scene, and it's a little snapshot of the time. And I also I don't know I thought it was interesting. I have it in my notes that. Not only does uh, not only does Frank blow off Lenore when she's telling you know something doesn't feel right. Oh, this is you know this is not the same as it was with Chris. The doctor also ignores her. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Re- repeatedly, just tells her no, no, it's fine, it's fine. You're, you know, you're you're just you know don't worry about it. We're okay. And, you know, he just he just keeps throwing these bromides at her. You know, when she's saying something is wrong, I mean, she's literally screaming something is wrong. <laughs> And and absolutely no one pays any attention to her. And she kind of her character sort of she's after this, as you might expect, she kind of loses it at this mm-hmm. point. Like it's the movie really is John Ryan's movie and about what he's going through because she's just kind of like she just sort of breaks down at that point and she gets upset. She's kinda of like, It's our baby, how can you do this? And you know, she's not really dealing with the the implications of of this of uh, you know I mean it, so as a character like she kind of and the, the movie opens with them as a couple and you're kind of like to me on the, you're you're following both of them but then it really does become his movie at that point because he's the one that has to deal with this and he has to deal with his uh, you mentioned he's he's a, he's in public relations and he has to deal with his job and then he has to deal with the cops and I mean it's him interacting with this all of society except for one scene which we'll talk about where the, the there's the really mean nurse uh talks to oh, the yeah. talks to the oh, wife yeah. but i mean but it's like it's i think that's an i mean you could argue it's not fair to the the wife character that she kind of gets sidelined a little but at the yeah. same time 
it is really about him. And you're almost like, well, this is another thing he has to deal with that not only is this horrible thing happened, but now this is this has damaged his wife because she's probably right. not fully kind of like mentally stable anymore. And I sort of like that bit of it, too. Yeah, I mean, I think and, and um, Sharon Farrell as Lenore also does really, you know, with what she's given. I think she does a really good job. She because both her and Frank, it, it's it's just a, this emotional roller coaster, you know. And you know, Frank goes through this this part of almost just kind of like shutting down mm-hmm. because of because of the shock of what it is. Then he goes into this whole level of denial where he's saying, you know, that that kid is nothing of mine. That you know, let's kill it. It needs to be eliminated. I agree. To um, getting more and more desperate to make sure people know that because the public is actually like screaming at him on the street because he, he because you know he his wife gave birth to this mutant and you know because the, you know the media picks up on it and it becomes this whole thing and then at the end he he actually tries to save his child you know the the this you know cats in the cradle thing kicks in <laughs> and and he wants to save his baby and Lenore I think she's broken by by what happens with 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 her child in the birth and everything um, and never really comes back from it. Yeah. But she kind of reaches that same point that Frank does, but she comes to it much earlier and she has the wherewithal to hide it. You know, she, she is protecting her baby even from her husband, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. But the, one of the things I, I thought was, was funny in a, in a way was that how quickly everyone came to the, to the, everyone came around to the idea like, okay, killer mutant baby. You know, like, yeah. like oh, you know, yeah. you know, like I think I think someone even says, well, you know, these things are bound to happen. You know, <laughs> wow. you know like it's not even a big. They're like, okay, well, I guess we got to kill it, and that's kind of the i that's the attitude through the whole movie of like, well, yeah, no one ever talks about like, oh, you know, this is weird. How did this happen? Everyone just goes, well, you know, we got to stop this this thing from killing the neighbors. I guess when you've only got a ninety minute running time, you just don't have, <laughs> you know, you just don't have the time for a lot of like. You know, doubts. You got to just get to the yeah. beat of it pretty quickly. Even, but yeah, the, the movie itself had to reach a, a suspension of disbelief. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I haven't seen the remake, but I hope that the remake um, covers. I mean, with social media now, the, I mean that this movie taps into that long before there was social media because all of a sudden these random people that have no connection to this family all of a sudden have an opinion. And feel the need to share it with this guy. And that's making his life extra difficult. I mean, he, he later on he goes and he has a scene uh, at his job uh, with his boss, played by uh, the actor Guy Stockwell. Um, and, and you know, Guy is kind of like – he's gently sort of like saying, oh, no, everything is going to be fine. We know that, you know, some of our clients are probably a little scared about that, that you know, they're they're – their projects or their campaigns are going to be worked on by the father of the mutant baby, but it's all good. And then, you know, and then John Ryan's character leaves and then immediately the boss is like, yeah, have his desk cleaned out by the end of the day. And it's like, you could totally see that happen. If that happened nowadays, you would get people sending in, they, they would be tweeting about this, you know, it would be totally hashtag mutant baby. Uh, (laughs) And it would all be comments about this guy. I mean, this guy's life, this guy would never be able to turn it off. And in this movie, he can't turn it off. And this is long before social media. Nowadays, he would just be, he would have to throw his phone out the window because it would just be melting down from all the, the rigging it would be doing. Right. Right. I just have to say, I hope someone out there hashtags mutant baby for us. I hope so. That would be great. That would be great. (laughs) 
I mean, I have enough Twitter accounts. I could get it trending just by myself. But I mean, yeah. But I mean, you know what I mean? I really like, again, that's, again, we're, I, we don't mean to like oversell this movie. This is no masterpiece or anything like that. But it, for what, I, for a movie called It's Alive, you know, um, you, I went into it with relatively low expectations. And then to me, it just really exceeded them because it just, I liked all of the character stuff in a monster movie. You're just not expecting that. So I, I really thought that was, that was, pretty cool yeah i i would almost not quite but i would almost go so far as to say it's almost a character study of mm-hmm. the father um because yeah i mean john ryan as frank does all the heavy lifting in this movie and i actually i think if you if you had gotten anybody else who didn't bring that same level of commitment that uh that john ryan did i think the the relative weakness of of maybe the rest of the cast would have been more obvious Mm-hmm. And and I don't think this movie would have been as good, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, dude, it's a perfect segue. I do want to mention some of the other actors in this movie. I already mentioned Guy Stockwell, who plays the boss. He was in Airport 1975, The Warlord with Charlton Heston. He was in a movie called Whiz Kids, which is unfortunately probably yeah. not about the TRS-80 Radio Shack kids. It's probably <laughs> something else. Um, James Dixon plays the police detective who you mentioned. He was a Larry Cohen favorite. He was pretty much probably the Robert De Niro to Larry Cohen's Martin Scorsese because he appeared in It's Alive 2 and 3, Q, The Stuff, which are all Larry Cohen movies. Plus he was in Larry – plus he was in The Wicked Stepmother, which is a Larry Cohen movie and also just happens to be Betty Davis's – yes, the Betty Davis, uh, her last film. So, I mean, wow. he, he constantly got work from uh, – from, from, uh, from Larry Cohen. Uh, there, William Wellman Jr., who is the son of the legendary director, who was an actor. He's in this movie. Um, and then Andrew Dugan, who plays the professor who's investigating this. He's an older gentleman. He was on a season nine episode of MASH. There's another MASH oh, wow. connection. He played Ma- Margaret Houlihan's father. He played, oh. yeah, in, in that episode. He has other credits like he was in It Lives Again. He was in In Like Flint. Seven Days in May, The Incredible Mr. Limpet. And then he has another movie on his IMDb, and I don't want to get too far afield if it's alive. But he was in a movie called Frankenstein Island, right? Oh. Now, listen, this, this, is, this, is, this is the summary of Frankenstein Island. Uh, I love it already. Yeah, when a, when a hot air balloon crashes on a remote island, the crew discovers Dr. Frankenstein's ancestor carrying on the family work, along with a race of mutants and a population of Amazons. Oh, wow. I am like, this sounds like the greatest movie <laughs> I've ever seen. And then, unfortunately, I saw that it was directed by Jerry Warren, who is a Z-grade filmmaker. He did oh. The Wild Wild World of Batwoman. So his movies aren't even fun bad. They're just oh. unendurably bad. So my enthusiasm for Frankenstein Island uh, went, you know, collapsed like a balloon, really, because I was like, oh, it's Jerry <laughs> Warren. Never mind. But anyway, those are the oh. other. those are most of the other actors in this film. And, yeah, they all are... You know, they're good to various degrees. But as you said, it really is that John Ryan sort of carries this thing all mostly by himself. Yeah, and one of the things that's interesting about it is that for for a horror movie, for a monster movie, it's not really that scary. No, um, no. There, there was, there was. I think Sandy, because my, my wife Sandy and I watched it together, and I think the one time we jumped was because a piñata fell off a shelf. <laughs> on the on the in the movie um but you know for the yeah for the most part it's not a scary movie but it is definitely a monster movie if that makes sense 
Oh, sure. I mean, I, I did have to chuckle when they discover that the, the, the baby is – because the baby seems to be able to get around the city pretty effortlessly. It's first kill after yeah. after the after the hospital. It, it kills a woman uh, off on like a ditch on the side of the road. And she's got like – she's got like this super beehive hairdo and like go-go boots. She mm-hmm. looks like she wandered in from, you know, a <laughs> Dean Martin gold digger sketch. And I'm like, wait, what is, what is she doing here? Um, and we get to see that uh, in effect that we're going to see throughout the film, which is baby cam, uh, yeah. where we see the POV of the baby, where everything is kind of like fuzzy and there's like a double image and he kills, he kills that woman. But there's this, there's this line where they look down in the sewer grate and the detective says something like, that's how it's been able to travel yeah. the city undetective. I'm like, undetective. I'm like, wait, hold on. How does a baby know how the sewers navigate throughout the city? I wouldn't be able to figure that out. And it's still a baby. It, yeah. like, I mean, how fast can it move? I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't care how much access to the sewers you might have. I don't think that allows you to get around the city any faster than anybody else, for the most part. You know, and I've never understood that either. How how is a sewer supposed to suddenly be like a, a you know a super pipeline to the yeah. you know, around the city? You know, you, you still got to go wherever you're you know going to. I don't. Yeah, I would, but I was you know at the beginning when Frank gets home after the after the. The birth, you know, the night that the baby is birthed, the baby is there, mm-hmm. and I don't know if the baby beat him to the house <laughs> or if it like hung on to the bottom of, of the truck. You know, oh, just, that would have been great you know, if they'd done that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I pref- that's what I like to think. <laughs> but you know, because the you know, and that's something that that uh, is a part of the movie too that we didn't discuss. But the baby seems to be attracted to its family. Right, right. So it kind of it kind of tends to go where the father is, or where the mother is, or it goes to the school where the boy goes, where his brother goes to school. So yeah, you know, it's it's always kind of zeroing in on the family. But yeah, but it gets apparently just that baby gets around. It really does. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the scene in the school because I thought there was a nice little detail there where, um, where he's being the the dad is being stalked by the baby. And he's looking around, and there's like all these. Um, he's in like the kindergarten class because the the brother yeah. is older. The brother is like a like a thirteen or twelve or thirteen year old. Yeah, I think um, he's in sixth grade. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, at one point he's in like the kindergarten class, and there's like these weird stuffed animals, mm-hmm. and like they don't look like normal stuffed animals. They kind of look like the blue meanies from Yellow Submarine. Like they're creepy looking. Like you would not get those for very small children. You would, you would get something more benign looking, but I'm like, okay, in this movie, even the toys for bait for, for little kids are kind of weird. And they've got these big (laughs) grins. Like they're just, they're they're like just a little unsettling. Right. And no one, no one knows what a light switch is. No, everybody (laughs) wanders around in the dark in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. With, with flashlights at the most. No, yeah, no one, no one hits the, no one hits the lights. This we uh, great you mentioned flashlights. This movie opens uh, on a, with some very very simple credits mm-hmm. of just these flat like the the circles you see on a flashlight, and they're all kind of moving around like it's this massive group of like a you know group hunting for these uh, the the you know looking for something. And in the, when you when you see it in the beginning, the movie opens with that. You don't really know what that means. It doesn't look like yeah. anything. And then when the movie ends. It ends with that – not exactly ends, but almost ends with that same thing. If you're seeing, well, oh, that's the search party mm-hmm. looking for this baby. And I'm like, that's kind of a nice little touch to open yeah. it with the ending and then you kind of circle back to it. I thought that was cool. I thought that – I really appreciated that because when – yeah, when the opening credits come up, I thought, okay, I don't know what that is. I thought it was just kind of like um, uh, what they used to do in, in um, at concerts when they would just you know kind of run the oil on the 
<laughs> on mm-hmm. the overhead projector, you know, just to get the things moving around. But yeah, it's it's uh, white and red dots, light dots that are just kind of moving around, and and at the end, it's flashlights and the and the uh, lights from the uh, cop cars. Yeah, like the sirens and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. because the, you know the the sewers in LA, you know at the LA River are big enough that you can drive a car into them, and they um, <laughs> and they um, and I actually really like those scenes also. You know, like when there's a part where. A Cop car is parked there. It has its 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 rolling lights on, and Frank is standing in front of it with a rifle. And the lights are kind of just zipping up and down the curved uh, the the curve of the of the of the uh, viaduct. And it's a really kind of awesome image. And you know, it's I again, I do not want to make this movie more than it is. Right. But <laughs> there are there are touches like that throughout the movie that make this a much better film than it had any right to be. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely would agree with that. Um, I did, like, we, we, we talked about it briefly for a second. We did mention the scene, the, the one of the big scene with the mother where she's basically an invalid at this point after this. She, she's just not. And right. then she gets tended to by a private nurse. And while the private nurse is talking to her, the nurse starts talking, the, the nurse, and she looks like a classic 1950s nurse with, like, the hat and the skirt, you know, like, <laughs> the little, like, paper hat or whatever it is. And it's, and she starts talking to the mother, and she's like, well, did you hear that it's killing people? I heard it has claws. And I'm like, you're talking to the to this child's mother. Like, she's so insensitive. Yeah. You're like, what the, who the hell hired this nurse? And then you find out that she's a plant, that she was there to write a book. And right. she is recording all this. Like she got in. She's not even. The, I don't even think they really even get across whether she's a real nurse or not. Uh, but I mean, it's she's there for an ulterior motive. That was a really nice scene because again, you would totally know that that would happen today. There would oh, be yeah. people dying for the exclusive or whatever. You know, there would be like uh, the, the guy from TMZ would be like, "Please give us an exclusive about your killer mutant baby." So I love the <laughs> So that was again. That was a really great scene. And of course, whatever like fragile stability uh the mother has it just pushes her even further when this, this woman who was supposedly there to take care of her is like i heard it's killed lots of people like, oh, yeah. geez thanks lady yeah that, that nurse is awful <laughs> she's a terrible human being yeah, yeah. it's really it's a <laughs> it's again it's it's very like black humor that scene because you're like what the hell is about yeah and you know it's funny for all the people who get killed by the baby like the milk milkman the, the carnation milk guy mm-hmm. he gets killed by the baby, and then the woman in the go-go boots gets killed by the baby. I wanted to see the nurse get killed by the baby, but <laughs> that, that never actually happens. Well, and I I was keeping count. That baby killed ten people. Oof. Yep, and you know, and half of those were in the first fifteen minutes. It yeah, well, right. It, it really racks up its body count in that hospital. Uh, the scene where he kills the milkman is sort of funny because if mm-hmm. there's like way more like you see all the he gets dragged into the back of the truck and we just see his feet sticking out and the, all this milk <laughs> is flying out the back of the truck and then the milk starts turning pink because yeah. it's mixed with the blood and it's like it's <laughs> I mean it's I think it's a little inadvertently comical and I, I was reading up some of the stuff and apparently that uh, Bernard Herman when he scored that scene he called it. He he his private name for that scene was the milkman goeth, which is <laughs> Well, you know, and it, it's the you know it's the seventies. It's early seventies. Were there? I had no idea there were still milk milkmen in the seventies. There were. I mean, they were kind of going out of style, but there were. Yeah, I, I wow. had a, I had a friend growing up 
in the uh, early 80s who actually got milk delivered. Uh, it was, yeah, I was like, wow, really? Yeah, but yeah, it was still a thing. Um, this movie was shot, and Larry Cohen, man, he really worked hard. This movie, <laughs> this movie was shot simultaneously on uh, during the week as when he shot another movie called Hell Up in Harlem with oh, a lot wow. of the same actors. So a lot of the same crew, they were working seven days a week just wow. on two different movies. I mean, the man who had to crank stuff out. Um, this was his fourth film. Uh, he had moved on. Later on, he did It Lives Again, which we mentioned. He did It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive. I mentioned the aforementioned um, Wicked Stepmother, which is Betty Davis's final film. She quit the film mid-production, and they had to come up with a story reason why Betty Davis disappears halfway through the movie. Uh, and then she died right after, so that ends up being her final film. He did a movie called The Stuff, which is a lot of fun. His next film, right after this one, was a, a, a little more serious thriller called God Told Me To, which is really good. It's about uh, religious zealots who decide that uh, you know it's okay to they feel it on orders from God. They can start killing people. Uh, oh, wow. It's a really it's 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 a great movie, and it's a little atypical of Larry Cohen in that it's a little more serious. It's not just like a crazy monster movie. And then he yeah. also did the movie Q, which was a crazy monster movie uh, in <laughs> 1982. And he just died uh, just last year in 2018. Oh. So, I mean, he had a you know he was one of these guys who just kind of kept working away on the and the, the margins of sort of acceptable. Uh, films, but nevertheless, as you mentioned, this film didn't really get a full release. And then, because apparently the Warner Brothers executives that greenlit it had left the company by the time the film was right. finished, and the new regime was like, "What is this? Like, what, what a killer <laughs> baby? What is this movie?" So they just kind of trotted it out with no fanfare, and it went nowhere. And then, uh, apparently, a, yet another regime came in later on, and Larry Cohen was on better terms with those people begged him to get a re-release. They gave it to him. And of course it was successful enough to make a sequel like two years later. Yeah. Yeah. And a third movie after that. And a it's, third movie after that. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty amazing when you think about it. Yeah. I, you've got a trilogy for Pete's sake. There's a, <laughs> it's like the Godfather, the Star Wars movies. A trilogy. So, uh, the effects are by Rick Baker. We should also mention mm -hmm. too, the yeah. legendary Rick Baker. This is one of his, one of his earlier films. Uh, again, they don't show you the baby too much because it, just killer babies just are inherently i just don't think that's even even one that's nightmarish looking or just right. they're just a little silly looking so even, even though it is it is a pretty you know when you if you look it up and you see the pictures of it it is a pretty gruesome looking thing it is sure yeah Amen. and yeah. that oh and the the worst part about it actually for me is the the way it cries <laughs> that you yeah, have that kind of screech out <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, oh my god! <laughs> if I heard that in the night, oh my god, I, I, I would do something unclean. <laughs> just, you know, that's just so disturbing. Definitely very, very upsetting. Uh, they said they, they did their best to make a killer baby movie as sort of nightmarish as possible. Um, yeah. So yeah, I said it's. I was really sort of taken with this movie. I thought it was just a lot better than it really had any need to be. I'm sure that. You know, Rick Baker, uh, excuse me, Rick Baker, Larry Cohen was like, you know, we're going to make a, a, a killer baby movie. And you're like, all right, that's enough. But, I mean, he throws in enough social commentary. And also, I, a couple other little details I wanted to mention. Um, John Ryan's character talks about uh, Frankenstein. Like, he, yeah. he says he even thinks of himself as Frankenstein's – as Dr. Frankenstein having created this monster. And uh, he literally mentions, like, Boris Karloff, which I thought was a nice touch because it's like, you know, in so many movies, especially horror movies, the characters have never seen a horror movie. 
Yeah. You know, and they yeah. just live in this bubble where there are no monster movies or there's nothing scary. But I like that, you know, in the world of It's Alive, Frankenstein is a movie. It's a movie that you could go and see and he can make the comparison. I like that. And then there's this point where he is being um, bothered by a bunch of film crews and they're like shoving their cameras in his face. And he's like, leave me alone. And at one point, um, a cameraman like drops a boom mic in front of him and they're like asking yeah. him questions and he smacks it away. And in the middle of his line, like his audio goes out. Because, like, all of a sudden the, the boom mic isn't picking up what he's hearing. And, of course, that doesn't yeah. make any literal sense because that's not what you're hearing. But it's a nice effect kind of. It's like a nice little bit of verisimilitude that it's like, oh, wow. Like, in this scene, we're kind of hearing the audio as it was being recorded by a news crew. And then we're hearing what would happen if you all of a sudden knocked your mic away and it would get yeah. really distant. I thought that was a nice little touch. I may have been accidental, but I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah. And, and, and the movie is full of little things like that. And I think that's – you know, it, it's that it's that cliche of the sum being more. I mean, the the parts being more than the sum. What? How does it go? <laughs> <laughs> more Something than the about, sum of its parts. More than the sum of its parts, and uh, because you know there are little touches like that throughout the, throughout the movie that you know again make it make this movie better than you think it's going to be. And I love the final scene with the you mm. mentioned where the the cop gets the call. And he says, yeah. there's another one born in Seattle. I thought, I mean, first of all, obviously we're laying pipe for the sequel. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. when, it's, when it's done that well, who cares? Yeah. Because that's really cool. I just like that kind of like, oh, shoot, this is a societal problem that we're going to have to deal with. And I thought that's a great way to, to end the movie. And that's just terrific. It, it's, a, it's a chilling ending. You know, it's, it really is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is, a, I should mention, there is a novelization of this oh, book by it, yeah. by someone named Richard Woodley. Now I have not had a chance to read it, but uh, I kind of want to now because I, <laughs> I love the idea of novelizations of movies you wouldn't expect there be for there to be one. Uh, and apparently, I mean, it must expand the world a little bit. So I'm, it's out of print, but you can get it on Amazon for relatively cheap. So I don't know, uh, Max. Oh, wow. Maybe maybe you know Christmas is coming. Maybe somebody wants to buy you that for the. Yeah. It's all you know. I, I would not say no. That, <laughs> that, would, that would be pretty special. That would make a great episode of The Mirror Factory, I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I was looking up some contemporary reviews from this movie, and there's one that really caught my eye. And it was, it was as you've expected, not terribly well-received by critics at the time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there's a critic, Kevin Thomas, of the Los Angeles Times. And this was his quote. He says, this is a sort of primitive, low-budget sequel – Ripoff may be the better word to Rosemary's Baby. Like, huh. no, it isn't. No, <laughs> it's got a baby in it, but that yeah. doesn't make it a ripoff for a sequel to another movie just because it has a baby. You know, other movies that have babies: Two Thousand One, uh, <laughs> Baby's Day Out. Uh, she's having a baby. None of which three have anything to three do. Men and a baby. Three men and a baby. I mean, it's like what? Like that guy was paid money to be a film critic and that was like that's the respect that he thought about that it's like it's a ripoff of rosemary's baby it's like both both films are horror movies and both films have a a central theme of a baby that's their connection there it's not it's not a low budget sequel it's not a ripoff it has no connection so screw you kevin thomas los angeles times Yeah, that, that is that is way off. That is yeah. way off. Is no way. I mean, yes, I can make the connection to Godzilla, but I cannot make the connection to yeah. Rosemary's Baby. I, that frustrates me that like when people are 
Yeah, I mean, I know I'm ang- I'm angry at a guy from 50 years ago, but <laughs> still, it just seems so, like I would imagine if you're Larry Cohen and you kind of work hard to make this movie and make it as good as you could make it, uh, and then you you read a review like that, that makes you want to just like you know like just get so frustrated because you're like, well, this guy didn't even bother to like really even consider it. Uh, we did mention a couple times the score by Bernard Herrmann, which is terrific. Uh, but you might expect it's Bernard Herman. I mean, the guy. For those of you who are not familiar with him, he's got a couple of credits you might be familiar with: Citizen Kane, uh, Taxi Driver, Psycho, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, I mean, the guy. Little, little movies. Little. A couple, couple of movies you've heard of, and he did do the score to It Lives Again. Now I don't know. He died in 1975, which is long before It Lives Again was made. So I wonder if. Um, they just reused his music and that, therefore he gets credit for it. He probably didn't do anything new for it. But this was one of his – probably the last things he did you know, as an original piece. But, I mean, that's that, – for, for a low-budget movie, that's getting a heavy hitter to do your score. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And, and it's effective. Yeah. I mean, it is a very effective score. Yeah, it's a good. It said it was. We're really pleasantly surprised uh, by this movie, so I'm really glad that you selected it. Oh well, good. I'm glad you liked it. All right. So, uh, is there anything else we want to talk about? It's alive before we uh, take a break and come back for our second film. Uh, no, just you know, if if uh, if people out there you know want to give it a chance, I think they there's uh, worse ways to spend uh, an hour and a half. Yes, uh, I should mention it is on DVD. Uh, I don't know if it's on Blu-ray, but it is on Amazon Prime. So mm-hmm. if you have Amazon, you can watch it there, which is where I watch it. So yeah, it's it's a really fun fun little thriller with something to say and uh, a killer baby that eats people. So I mean, you can't go <laughs> can't go wrong with that. So so uh, okay, do what my parents did. Watch it with your kids. Exactly, it's family family <laughs> fair. So uh, well, anyway, so uh, Max and I are going to take a trip to the concession stand and pick some things up. So everybody, stay tuned. We're gonna run a commercial and a trailer and when we come back we're going to talk about our second drive-in feature which is 1973's Invasion of the Bee Girls yeah Lieutenant Perkins call you on the private line right Perkins I understand Another one's been born in Seattle. Treat. 
Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What strange force was taking hold of the women of Peckham, California? What strange ritual unlocked the hidden appetites of these women? What transformed ordinary housewives into ravishingly beautiful women? What bizarre secrets threatened every man in town? The invasion of the bee girls. Dropping like flies, eh, God? Flies. The United States government sent their top investigator to Peckham to try and stop this sexual epidemic. However, there are three points of uniformity I would like to bring out. One, all the victims have been men. It may sound ridiculous, but, but could it be some form of epidemic? It's a very tough question to answer, Jim. Now, each death is perfectly normal in itself. Well, what about a 21-year-old boy that dies of thrombosis? Isn't that just a little unusual? Total sexual abstinence. Hold it! Now, just hold it! This is the stupidest damn thing I've heard of yet! Abstinence isn't going to be anything new around here. Well, if I ever positive it was going to kill you, do it. <laughs> of the B-Girls. And we're back with the second half of our hor- Halloween Horror Drive-In double feature. And as promised, we're here to talk about 1973's Invasion of the B-Girls. Uh, it, it's a, yeah. Yeah, it's a, a special agent from the government is assigned to investigate a series of unusual deaths taking place in a small California town. A number of normally healthy men have died from congestive heart failure, even though they seem to be fine otherwise. The one connection all the men had were, was, well, that they were real players. Once it becomes clear that all these men died during sex, the local sheriff advocates abstinence among the town's male population, a suggestion met with, understandably, derision. After one of the scientists dies after having sex with a beautiful entomologist named Susan, Special Agent Agar determines that there is something very wrong with a group of women in the town. We learn that via experiments, these women have been transformed into B-girls, possessing solid black eyes and a desperate need to kill men during the mating process. Having been discovered, the B-girls try and kill the remaining scientists, but Agar blows up their lab and rescues a woman named Julie who is about to be transformed into a B-girl. So, okay, Max, had you seen Invasion of the B-Girls before I selected it for this episode? Gratuitous nudity. Yeah. Sorry, I had, to get, I had to get that out first. No, I have not seen this movie. <laughs> well, okay, you obviously got the main point of it then by gratuitous nudity. <laughs> no, I, I had never seen, I had never even heard of this movie before. Oh, oh, oh uh, I feel like I'd added something to your life. You, oh, you have no idea. <laughs> I, I... This movie is 
very much of its time. Uh, so, uh, yeah, a, a lot of gratuitous nudity, uh, not a whole heck of a lot of plot. Men who are just total jackasses. Oh, this is scumbag you, this oh, movie. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, but entirely enjoyable. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay, yeah, let's let's be straight up front. It, this movie is mostly a nudity delivery system. Uh, that is what it was made for. It was made for people to watch in a drive-in in the 1970s and getting to see a lot of really beautiful women get naked. That There are extended sequences of naked girls in this movie. That's what it's about. I mean, it really is. Uh, I mean... First of all, uh, this movie has been uh, re-released on video and some other forms as Graveyard Tramps. Oh my god! Uh, which is not. <laughs> there's nothing. No. I mean, the, 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 this movie has nothing to do with graveyards, other than yeah, they no. kill people. But I mean, that makes it sound like it's kind of like a horror movie. And this is this does have some horror elements, but it's really more like a sci-fi movie. With mm-hmm. with that stuff, but it's it, Graveyard Tramps is not at all appropriate a title. I mean, I, I don't even know why you would move off Invasion of the Bee Girls. That's a great title. Why do you? What, what else do you, you know, need? With the title Invasion of the Bee Girls, I got exactly what I was expecting. Right. If I got, if I if I rented something or or bought something called Graveyard Tramps and saw this movie, I would be kind of pissed because that's not that's not what I would be expecting at all. Right. But Invasion of the Bee Girls. Absolutely. Yeah, your graveyard tramps. You're expecting kind of like an Elvira thing, you know, where it's like vampire mm-hmm. girls, and that's not what this is. Although these women do, of course, prey on these men. So yeah, you mentioned that the how scummy the men are, and they are really, really scummy, except for the main character, the inspect the uh, the in, the investigator from the government, uh, Agar, played by William Smith, legendary. Uh, sort of grindhouse star William Smith, who appeared in movies like Any Which Way You Can, Red Dawn, Twilight's Last Gleaming. He, uh, Police Women, The Thing with Two Heads, Chrome and Hot Leather. He was also in a movie called Boss N Word. So uh, these oh. guys, a lot of movies with the N Word in it, surprisingly, for the yeah, 1970s. Yeah. Um, but except for him, all the men in this movie are just scummy as hell. And the scientists yeah. are just all like, they're always either complaining about that women talk too much or they are like, there's uh, the the main the main entomologist who is uh, I mentioned named uh, Susan played by Anitra Ford Dr Susan Harris. All the men talk about her as like an ice queen and like they always sort of running her down. And these are like really horribly scummy dudes. And so when they die uh, in the sex act, you're kind of like, okay, yeah, they kind of I mean, you know, they sort of yeah. deserve it because they're really horrible guys. Yeah, well, they they deserve to die, but they didn't even deserve the sex. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're they are awful. They're just they're just terrible people. And even even um, uh, Neil Agar, the the special agent, is you know he's no prize himself. No, but he's he not. Is still, he is still miles better than any of these other guys because you know, and these are supposed to be professors and researchers, scientists, and they would not be out of place if they were all wearing trench coats with one hand in their pocket. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are, they are so gross um, that, yeah, you're, you're kind of like, yeah, no, me girls, please yeah. have at it. Yeah. Neil, Neil Agar can at least talk to some women like they're, right. I like they're like, Oh, I don't know. Human beings. Uh, you know what I mean? Right. It's like, it's like he talks to, he's doing investigating the case and he finds out like, I, first of all, we're going to jump right to it. This movie features one of the greatest lines 
ever in history where he is talking, he's doing some investigating and he's trying to find out why this one guy died mid sex. And he talks to this woman and she, she's very coquettish initially about uh, what they did on their date and how he managed to die. And then he presses her. And then this woman finally reveals what happened. Uh, Neil takes Julie to dinner on on the pretense of, of asking her about about uh, what's going on, what you know, he's because he's investigating and he's kind of bored because he he doesn't think this is going to go anywhere. And um, Julie turns out to have been what they think is the last person to have seen uh, the victim. And uh, he's asking her, "What did you? What would? Uh, what happened? What were you doing?" And she says, "We bawled and we bawled and we bawled until he dropped dead." <laughs> That's always the scene they show on the Oscar clips every year when they do like their salute to cinema. That's always that line. It's great. Yeah. Oh, that line is. Oh, she delivers it so well that it took me a second to realize she was kidding. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, God. She's fantastic. That that actress, by the way, is Victoria Vetri, uh, who was really mostly famous for being a Playboy centerfold, which is, of course, probably why she got the gig. But she did have some other credits. She was in the Batman TV show. She was in Rosemary's Baby. Hey, that movie that uh, was uh, – it's alive as a ripoff of. Um, when Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. Uh, she didn't have a lot of other credits after that, but she does have some interesting – Stuff in her IMDb profile, it mentions here that she was charged with attempted murder after oh. she allegedly shot her husband of 25 years, Bruce, Bruce Rathgeb, from close range in their Hollywood apartment on October 16, 2010, on September 7, 2011. After pleading no contest to charges of attempted voluntary manslaughter, she was sentenced to nine years in prison. So doing the math, wow. she might still be in prison at the time we're recording this. I don't oh know. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. Oh, man. Victoria, stay strong. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> we balled and we balled. And then it also mentions that in the 60s, she became close friends with Sharon Tate. On the night of August 8th and 9th, 1969, Tate invited Vetri to her and Polanski's house while the director was, a vet, was away. Vetri declined due to illness. That was the night Tate and four others died at the hands of Charles Manson's followers. Holy so moly. So this, this woman has led a kind of interesting life, man, even though she wow. has a lot of film credits. But, whew, oh, man. Wow, uh, that is, yeah, oof. So that's, yeah. A, a common theme of this movie that I saw is, uh, I mean, again, it, it, this is one of these movies that, you know, on the one hand, if you want to look at it a certain way, it's kind of a feminist movie. Because it is presenting yeah. the men as such scumbags, but at the same time, it is so devoted to just showing off women nude that yeah. you really could hardly say, "Well, this isn't going to be Ms. Magazine's movie of the year anytime <laughs> soon." But, it, but a common theme of this film is guys who do not know how to punch their weight, because mm. it's all these guys that are, you know, let's be honest, not the most attractive looking guys. William Smith is the hunk of this movie. He's a big muscular guy. And he's got yeah. a big thick head of hair. And you know, the guys that, that, that are dying uh, in flagrante delecto with the B girls are not the, not the best looking guys in the world. And yet these incredibly hot women are yeah. throwing themselves at them. And not once does any one of these guys say, you know, maybe this is something a little suspicious. You know what I mean? Well, like they just immediately start taking their clothes off because they're like, "Oh, I'm about to get laid." It's like maybe think yeah. this through. Well, it's even weirder than that because apparently this is this is how this universe, this research, is it a university or a research center? I don't even know now. It's a government research center. <laughs> I think it's a government research center. Yeah, they um, apparently this is like their mo. 
you know, they're, they're always on the make. They're always kind of, uh, you know, like there's one who's, who is, uh, married, but it's a, it's a loveless marriage. And, and apparently it's, it's very obvious to, to his wife that he is constantly cheating on her. And, you know, these guys, the way these guys talk, it's with that, and I hate to throw these buzzwords on, but it's like that male privilege of like of the caveman clubbing clubbing the women and dragging mm-hmm. them back to the cave. It's it is almost it it's presented as being almost without having to be said that if they hit on a woman, that woman is expected to respond. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's 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 like I said before, and I you know I don't want to go back on you know my seventh grade wording, but it's gross. And, well, <laughs> it's right, the, the main the main doctor, well, not the main one, but the, like the guy that gets the big sex scene in the middle of the film, Herb Klein, the character Herb Klein played by Ben Hammer, which is a great great name yeah. by the way. He's, and that is that is quite a sex scene. Yeah, it is cool. Oh boy, we got to talk about that. He's married to Nora Klein, who does the the bald and bald and bald. Uh, no, she doesn't do that. Nora Klein. He's married to Nora Klein, played by um, an actress named. Anna Ares or Arias, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. But anyway, when we see, when we're introduced to her via a picture he has of her on his desk, and you're like, wait a minute, that guy's married to her? Yeah. And, and the whole time he's complaining about like what a battle act she is and it's like this loveless relationship. And he's like, you know, oh God, the ball and chain. And you're like, dude, you're married to like a Playboy centerfold. And you're like this bald nerdy looking dude like what the <laughs> hell and it, the guy has no moment of self-reflection that it's no. like maybe you should be a little lucky and it's like it, it's the things it, it's that going over and over again of guys that are just like you know oh man this super hot woman wants to f me in the middle of this field yeah. let's just do it i don't know man I, <laughs> I, I would i would be a little concerned by the way that scene of the b girl and that one guy bawling which is the phrase I'm going to use for the rest of this episode is bawling. When Why not? The movie does. Yeah, right. Exactly. When they're bawling in the field, you notice there's none of their – there's no clothes anywhere. Like they're just nude in the middle of the field. Yeah. Like, I, I swear that I was – when I was watching that, I thought, did I turn away for a second? Or Because <laughs> at some point, all of a sudden, there are two naked people rolling down a hill. Yeah. And, you know, with this almost – No clothes anywhere. There's no shirt. No there's no pants. Yeah. Did they no, drive their nude? I don't understand what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and this romantic music swells up. And I'm like, what? what how did this happen? Where yeah. did this come from? Yeah. It is kind of like a little dropped in out of, out of nowhere. Um, I, we mentioned the character of uh, Dr. Susan Harris, who was played by Anitra Ford. Now, Anitra Ford uh, didn't have that many credits. She was in The Longest Yard, or the Burt Reynolds movie. She was in the movie The Big Bird Cage. Uh, uh, us fellow nerds probably know her from the Wonder Woman uh, TV special with starred Kathy Crosby as, as Wonder Woman, except the weird thing is, and I, I mentioned this in my review of that pilot when I did it for 13 dimension is she played uh, another, she played a rogue Amazon uh, in that movie. And if any of you have ever seen Anitra Ford and go Google her, she is stunning. I mean, drop dead, Gaga eyes, you know, the the Tex Avery eyes bugging out of your head, gorgeous. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute, Kathy Crosby played Wonder Woman and this woman played the villain? Like, why? Like, you got Wonder Woman right there. I mean, maybe yeah. they felt she couldn't carry the role. Uh, but, I mean, you look at her and you're like, that's Wonder Woman. And yeah. she is, I mean, look. We're Max. We're two. Max and I are two hetero guys here, and we're trying to not be gross. As here's the word of the day about this. Right. But nevertheless, they 
know the director, uh, Dennis Sanders, who was an Oscar winner, actually, for a short that he did in the 1960s. This was an Oscar-winning guy directing this movie. He oh. knew that if you got a Nietzsche Ford in your movie, you got to get her naked. Uh, because she's mm-hmm. just so unbelievably gorgeous. And she has this sex scene in the middle of the movie with the Herb Klein character. And there's a lot of nudity. Uh, of course, it's all on the female's part. We don't want to see yeah. Herb Klein naked. We don't need to see that. No, we just yeah. see his chest or whatever. That's fine. But, 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 and again, I don't want to make too much of a thing about this or, or give it more credit than it deserves. But there is a moment in the film where she gets completely naked and she kind of like curls up a little bit and she's in the foreground and she's sort of laying against him a little. Mm-hmm. She curls up and, and she has impossibly long legs. Uh, and there's this moment where I'm like, okay, obviously the scene is meant to titillate. Sure. But I also feel like the movie is actually sort of taking a moment to just admire the, how impossibly gorgeous this female form is. I mean, it's almost like a classic painting. You know what I mean? Like, am I overselling that Max? But there's a moment where it's like, you're just like anybody of any appreciation of the female form would look at that and say, that is an impossibly beautiful woman. Yeah. And I would, I would say a couple of things. First of all, yes. I mean, Anitra Ford is just an objectively beautiful woman. I mean, there is no two ways around it. You, no one, no one can reasonably argue otherwise. Um, and you know, as we've mentioned before, there's a lot of nudity in this movie. Um, there's a transformation scene that is like wall to wall, uh, nudity. Oh, I got a lot to say about that scene. <laughs> and, but, um, the, the camera just kind of spends a couple of seconds on people and pans around and, you know, there, you know, there, there's a, there's a lot of jiggly bits to, to focus on, <laughs> but, but with, uh, with Anitra Ford, you know, yeah, it, it takes, it's time. And I think part of what it is, is like you said, you know, that scene is obviously, it's a sex scene. It's obviously meant to titillate, but it is also just an appreciation of, of, uh, again, an objectively beautiful woman. And, you know, and I don't remember what comedian said it, but, you know, or maybe I think it was Seinfeld actually uh, that I'm thinking of where, uh, Elaine is saying, you know, Oh, you know, a naked woman is beautiful. A, a naked man is, you know, like watching a, a monkey, <laughs> you know, and it's, and it, I think it's true. And it's, you know, and I mean, Anitra Ford is the kind of person that if it was back in the days of Michelangelo or, you know, uh, people would be sculpting this woman. Yeah, that is exactly what I was trying to convey and I couldn't put it together, but that's, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and she, and as an as a, as an actor, you know, yeah, she's not going to be winning any awards, but she she totally pulls off this sultry um, predator, really, <laughs> you know. And I can totally see it. I can totally see why men would just go, okay, yeah, I'll follow you into that dark room. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm, I've been making fun of these guys who don't show any self awareness to be like, I mean, again, the Herb Klein character doesn't realize, like, he really thinks he's talking his way into her pants. Oh, really, yeah, dude? No. Come on. Yeah, he thinks but he's it, charming her. Yeah. yeah, really. But at the same time, I guess if you, if 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 a woman who looks like a Nietzsche Ford is willing to get naked with you, you really aren't going to take any time to question it. You're going to be like, I'm just, <laughs> this is just great. So let's just move forward with this. But, but yeah, I mean, and you know, we'll never know. I mean, maybe it could be the kind of like a curse where it's like, maybe a Nietzsche Ford had 
acting skills, but no one was ever going to give her anything really substantial to do because she was so impossibly beautiful. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it could be that kind of thing too. You know, I mean, I don't know. But I mean, again, I don't want to oversell that scene and make it sound like it's some sort of deep appreciation of the of of you know femininity. It isn't. Right, it's meant right. to just be like, hey, look, we got a really gorgeous woman, and she's willing to get completely naked. But right. it's just it the move the, the scene moves at a pace that I didn't expect. A, mo- a movie as sort of grungy and low rent as this to do, mm-hmm. and I sort of appreciated um, that part of it. Now you do me- <laughs> you do mention this big scene where they trans they 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 are trying to transform all these different women into B girls. That's the whole the, the yeah. gist of it is that there's this group of them, and because they have these black eyes, like a dead eyes, like a doll's yeah. eyes, um, <laughs> they wear these really big sunglasses to kind of cover them. So yeah. they all look very fat. They all look like Jackie O. Look very yeah. fashionable, and so they get they transform Nora into a B girl, and it right, is they're, they're actively recruiting. They're actively recruiting, right? And so they have this extended sequence where they have Nora, and she is kind of like I guess not like brainwashed, but she's sort of like like slightly brainwashed because she's not fighting this off. Uh, and she's in there, and they all these other girls, and they have her in the they have her in the B girl lab, by the way, which looks like um, their main <laughs> apparatus looks like a jungle gym. For the most part, it doesn't look anything to be sophisticated. But anyway, they have Nora and they strip Nora completely down. So she's topless through this whole scene. And all the B-girls mix up this goo, this white goo. And uh, presumably that's what, you know, bees, it's supposed yeah. to be kind of like a honey type situation. And they, yeah, I, I have a note about that. I thought it looked like Elmer's glue. It did look like Elmer's glue because yeah. it's white and thick. And yeah. uh, they start coating her with it. And it is just straight up. A lesbian scene. I mean, there's yeah. they're not even trying to do anything else. It's a bunch of really <laughs> gorgeous women slathering a naked girl in this white substance. I mean, it's just right up there. I can imagine when you if you saw this on a big screen in a drive-in, what this must have been like. Right. Um, and the scene goes on for a long time. I mean, it's very slow and very sensual, and they're just like loving close-ups of the hands gliding oh, over yeah. the woman's breasts. I mean, it is just... Did, did Sandy watch this with this one with you, too? She did. She oh. did, actually. <laughs> what, was yeah. her, what was her reaction to that scene? She might have gotten up to get something from the kitchen. I <laughs> remember but yeah she uh, you know i mean she's uh you know that's something i wanted to say too is that you know movies from this era and i am certainly not excusing them but it was very common for movies uh um to have a lot of especially female nudity oh yeah um and so if you're a certain if you're of a certain age like i am and i and i think you are you know it's it's uh in a way not unexpected from, from movies from that era just because you know to to one degree or another a lot of movies were like that yeah oh yeah oh yeah they the mm-hmm. movies were these grindhouse movies were really a delivery system i mean you think about it this is pre-internet and outside of playboy or penthouse he didn't really you know where where else was like a, an average young man gonna see naked women if they couldn't get that in their real life so he had to go to the movies to get it i mean right. you know you didn't have cable channels or anything or the internet delivering it to you 24 hours a day but uh, but the scene the scene of them transforming nora into the b-girl is just completely gratuitous and it's it's got all this crazy pink lighting you know and like they're again they're just slow pans of them massaging her body and covering her and then they put her in this chamber oh and, and massaging themselves the, 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 right, girls yeah. who are, the me girls who are not like 
actually spreading this stuff on are in the background, kind of like, uh, you know, it's just yeah. like it's apparently it's a very erotic, very orgiastic process. scene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they, they put her in this chamber and it sort of like bakes on her and then they pull it off her. And then she's transformed into a bee girl, and it is you know she's got the eyes at that point, and then you know go go forward and and procreate. Uh, Nora, you're one of the bee girls. The problem with this scene, I think, is that it comes too soon into the movie. It comes about two thirds into the movie, and yeah. it really is to me the, the 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 kicker to your film. And unfortunately, there's like twenty more minutes of people talking. And you're just like, yeah. the movie can't match it at that point. And I'm like, they really should have figured out a way to put this much, much near the end of the film to have it be. I mean, there's a big action scene at the end. I mean, if they could have followed the, the you know, the lesbian bee creating scene with the action scene, then you'd have a real yeah. hell of an ending. But the fact that you have a bunch of scenes of, of just characters talking, you're just like, what? what? The, the movie just peaks early, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And it's, um, you know, a lot of that is trying to explain sort of what's going on. Because they're, at one point, uh, Neil and Julie are actually literally sitting down watching a, uh, like a film strip <laughs> about yeah, bees yeah. And, and insects. And they're, you know, so that's how they're laying the groundwork for metamorphosis and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and apian behavior. And, um, you know, and yeah, that, that comes in later because, uh, an important part of what they're doing is they're basically acting like bees and they're, they're trying to find a queen because the first one to become fertile becomes a queen, but the process is flawed. So all of them are being transformed into bee, bee girls, but they're all being, uh, they're all coming out sterile. So basically that's why they are having, uh, you know, sex with men that kills the men in the end through, you know, what is this extreme exhaustion? Um, it's because, uh, you know, n- they all are trying to become, uh, uh, impregnated basically, but none of them can. And, you know, but, and so, but they go there, there's a long, uh, they take a long road to get there. Yeah. And in, in a way, you know, I don't need that. <laughs> you know, at this point in the movie, I don't really need to know why they're doing it. I just need to know that they're doing it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we don't necessarily need all that all that explanation. Um there is a I do not not to get I don't want to get too complimentary with this movie. There is unfortunately a um completely unnecessary rape scene. Oh yeah. uh which is pretty brutal and pretty graphic and unfortunately it features uh, nudity, and I am always very scared of scenes of nudity that uh, scenes of ra- rape scenes that have nudity because I always feel like that's the director is trying to like you know titillate as well, and it's just completely unnecessary, and it basically just gives William Smith, uh, William Smith's Agar character, a chance to kind of just punch a bunch of guys because he stops right. it in the middle. But I wish that scene wasn't it because this movie is just goofy and silly, and mm-hmm. and 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 then that part of it, you you know, I. I've said this about uh, DC Comics, where it's like to me in, in in like superhero comics, in my mind, rape does not exist in the world of superhero comics. It just doesn't yeah. exist. It's not a thing. This is a this is a world with a detective chimp, you know, and a and a, and a guy who's like has hawk hawk wings and flies around, and there's like a guy right. that wears a jacket. This is a very silly world, and something like rape doesn't happen. And so, in a movie but called the Invasion of the Bee Girls where it's a bunch of scientist girls that are half human, half bees running a, a lab like it's Batman. 
rape should exactly. not rape yes, should not exactly. be a thing. Uh, I guess the only point you want to make is that the men. It's just this movie's view of men is pretty pretty low, and so I right. guess they're just even underscoring it that yeah, as bad as these scientists are, there there are other men that are even worse because they uh, they start like talking about how they're going to like cut her open and like you like examine her. It's really pretty hideous. Yeah, and it's and that's another subplot that kind of just didn't really go anywhere. Uh, because once men, I mean, because the men in the beginning start dropping pretty quickly. Right. Um, and so what they suggest, what the authorities suggest is a, um, essentially a moratorium on sex. No, right. they don't want anyone to have sex. Which does not go um, over well. Yeah. Which, and, and the guys who are trying to, uh, commit this rape are workers from their, they're workers from the cannery factory who are in the audience when, when this uh, announcement is made to the to the public. Yeah, the sheriff is like, well, maybe you guys should maybe re- refrain from having sex. And they're like, yeah, no. Right. Yeah, no, they, they, just, they just lose their minds, at even the idea of it. And, um, but yeah, but that doesn't really go anywhere. And I, I think you're right. I think the idea is just to show how much these men deserve w- what they get. Yeah. Even though... I don't remember. I think maybe one of these guys gets killed by a B girl later, but maybe yes. not. I, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And um, and yeah, that, that just seemed kind of uh, in a movie full of gr- gratuitous things. That <laughs> that seemed especially gratuitous. Yeah, I just it's just like I, you know, I, I, yeah, I just it jumped in. I was like, oh, I wish they could cut this part out. I mean, it's a short movie, but it just doesn't it doesn't need it. Uh, the uh, I do want to mention some of the other actors. The sheriff, as I mentioned just earlier, is played by a guy named Cliff Osmond, who you saw in a lot of movies. He was in uh, the Batman TV show. He was on Trapper John, Knight Rider. He apparently must have been. Uh, must have been friends with Billy Wilder because he's in a couple Billy Wilder movies. The front page, the fortune cookie. Katie Saylor plays one of the B girls. She was in a bunch of B's, B, no pun intended, movies. Uh, <laughs> swinging, the Swinging Barmaids, Dirty O'Neill, and Supervan. Uh, the uh, aforementioned Herb Klein is, like I said, played by Ben Hammer, who was, uh, was working as of 2018. Uh, oh, wow. Kept busy. He was on lots of things. He was on the A Team, Law and Order. He was in the movie Mannequin. Uh, he's in the movie Sleepers. So, I mean, he's done a lot of stuff. Wow. One of the other B girls is Anna Aries. As I mentioned, she was in a movie called Get to Know Your Rabbit, which features Orson Welles and Tommy Smothers. That's a great cast. Uh, <laughs> she was in, she, yeah, she's in the Omega Men. And then there's this whole other subplot where there's a married couple. Uh, in this film, and the whole joke is that this married couple are an old married couple, and they do not have sex anymore. Stan Williams and Harriet Williams, and they are basically a live a- live action version of the Lockhorns, where they just they just hate each other. And uh, you know, he makes a joke about, well, sex is killing all the men. Well, I guess I'm safe. And then she says, well, if I thought it was going to kill you, I'd have sex with you right now. Yeah. And um, Stan, the guy playing Stan, is named Sid Kaiser. He doesn't a lot of credits, but Beverly Powers. Plays Harriet, uh, uh, plays a uh, excuse me, plays um Harriet Williams. She has a lot of credits. Uh, some of her films are at are at Breakfast at Tiffany's. She was also in Get to Know Your Rabbit, Viva Las Vegas, Comedy of Terrors, The Loved One, the Elvis film Speedway, and she's now an ordained minister in Maui. So good for her. Um, She, when she becomes a B girl, she tries to seduce her husband because of course then she's going to kill him too. So that's the one time they actually do have sex, uh, which doesn't work out well for her because he ends up killing her. And it's kind of 
gross scene as well. But uh, but I mean, yeah, they are they they're kind of like the comedy relief of this movie. Like just kind of constantly squabbling about the fact they don't have any sex. And then when she tries to entice him with wearing like a nightie and whatever, and he gets involved, and then of course that's when her her bee eyes come out. Yeah, yeah. No, and I you know I did I. I, I don't want it to seem like I'm dumping on this movie because I, you know, it's, I, it has the, the whole uh, male attitude of the movie is, is what I think would be, especially to, to younger generations, I think would be probably maybe upsetting actually. Mm. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I can totally appreciate this movie for what it is, which, as you say, is, you know, no pun intended, a B movie. <laughs> and, um, but that, that is, you know, it's, it's very much in that vein. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, I guess it's from genetic experiments. Is that how the, how they start becoming B girls? Yes. It's Susan Harris is, a, she says she's an entomologist and she's been experimenting with this. So that's right, her right. view. She's you know, a classic mad scientist, except, yeah. except she doesn't talk very much. Yeah. You know, and it's and on, on paper, it's a great idea. I, yeah. <laughs> I love the idea of this, of this lady who basically screws with her genetics, becomes a bee woman and, and does what bees do. You know, she starts trying to build a colony. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it's pretty great on on that level. And, you know, again, it is very much a product of its time, good and bad, and, um, probably has one of the most awesome opening themes I've ever heard. Oh, it's, (laughs) it's, yeah, I'm glad you, oh boy, I'm glad you mentioned some of the music in this film. This, I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. This film ends with uh, footage of bees pollinating a flower set to also Sprock Zarathustra, which is a bold move, Dennis Sanders, bold move, I have to say, to end your film with The most egregious use of that piece of music. Now, uh, I did, again, I mentioned uh, Dennis Sanders. Uh, he, he was an Oscar winner. Uh, he also directed a, uh, a movie called Computers Are People Too, which sounds fantastic. He died in 1987. <laughs> Some of the people behind this film, though, uh, this movie was shot by Gary Graver, who was Orson Welles' cinematographer during the last 25 wow. years of his life. He worked on Other Side of the Wind, which you can see on Netflix that I covered here on Film and Water. Gary Graver did a lot of B, and no, I keep saying B, <laughs> B he did a lot of B and C and even some porno to pay the bills because he basically handed his career over to Orson Welles. And that was probably not the smartest move in the world, but that's what he did. And so to, to help uh, pay the rent, he did a lot of – shot a lot of crap. And mm-hmm. uh, this was probably on the upper echelon of some of the, some of the things he did. The screenplay, though, did you happen to notice who wrote this movie? No. It's a little little someone that we're all familiar with, Nicholas Meyer. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> the Nicholas Meyer, Star Trek Two Nicholas Meyer, Star Trek wow. Six Nicholas Meyer. He wrote this film, and apparently, when it was uh, when he saw the finished film, he tried to get his name taken off of it, but his <laughs> his agent said that would be bad for your career because you need a credit. So he left his name on there, and he ended up being a novelist, and then found his way back to film. But this is this is written by Nick, the same man who brought you Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Also brought you Invasion of the Bee Girl. So live with that, everybody. Yeah, Star Trek 2, 4, 6, mm-hmm. Time After Time. <laughs> like, what is 
the world the world does not make sense anymore. Right? No, it does not. I loved what I found. That I was like, that's fantastic. So, uh, and then you know, it's funny. We're talking about how this film has a very dim view of men, and and except for you know, Agar is kind of nominally better than the rest of them. And then you get right. to the then you get to the final scene of this movie where him and Julie are presumably a couple, right? Mm-hmm. And it is there's this it's this really hideous scene where Julie, who has lived through all this, she starts talking and she's talking and talking, and then William Smith basically just picks her up and throws her onto the bed, and yeah. the whole scene is basically like women, you know, it's like you know you can't get them to shut up, so just start effing them, and then then they'll be yeah. quiet, and you're like, oh lord. Oh, well, and be- before that, he actually just like gets up and walks out on her. He does. She's in the middle of she's talking, and he gets and walks out of the room, and she follows him around like a kid. Oh, it's yeah. and it's like I can't tell if the movie is endorsing that behavior or it's commenting on it. I actually don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, this is yeah. That's another have not cracked. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know what this movie is. I don't know what it's trying to say. No, I really, I don't. Dennis Sanders. You know, just not a clear <laughs> through line on his films, I guess. But but then again, when when we mentioned that it ends with the footage of the bees with you know to Z- Z- Zarathustra, I'm like, well, then this has got to be a gag, right? I mean, he can't yeah. like literally be meeting this. This is, can't be the way this is. So yeah, I mean this again. This is on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's it's enormously fun. It is does mm-hmm. have some dead spots here and there, but all the stuff with the B girls is really fun. And it's just it's fun to just watch the B girls, you know, take advantage of their 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 physiques and uh, offer themselves up to the stupidest men on the planet. I mean, there's a there's <laughs> there's a point where a bunch of army men are on the hunt for the B girls and. There's this one soldier and this girl, one of the B girls comes around and she just pulls her top off. And yeah. the, the army guy practically drops his gun, you know, because he's like, oh, look, a topless girl. And he runs over to her. And then, of course, he's killed like five seconds later. So, right. you know, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go for a no prize here. OK, I I don't know. I, I mean, maybe my brain was trying to save itself. I what I think what in my my mind, uh, my head canon for this is that maybe they're projecting some sort of pheromones. And turning the men into drones, and they can't and they can't help themselves, and so they they as soon as the women you know pump out this pheromone or whatever, they they just they have to respond. You know, they do kind of talk about that a little bit. They don't get into it too deeply, but that 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 could be the case. Yes, is that it's making the men extra stupid. Yeah, uh, but, it, but it's very, but it's also very possible that because every man in this movie is extremely stupid already incredibly stupid yeah <laughs> i mean the sheriff is not i guess uh, other than agar the sheriff is nominally okay like he never actually gets a sex scene with any of the b girl so he seems to have some level of competency sort of taking this seriously in the investigation because these people are dropping dead but uh but yeah it's it's it is kind of just setting up it again it's one of those weird movies where it feels like it's feminist but then it's got so much female flesh on display that you're like, well, it's yeah. not really a feminist movie. But because, again, it's written, you know, written by a guy, directed by a guy, shot, you know, it's got the male gaze of a guy. I mean, but at the same time, it's like all the men are such pieces of garbage. Uh, I mean, you could re- we were talking about, you know, It's Alive was remade. You could remake this today and it's all the B-girls go and go to go on Twitter and find a bunch of incels and just kill them. Yeah. With oh, that, yeah. You know, that would work. Yeah. I'd pay to see do that. It. So, yeah, do that. Make yeah. that movie, Hollywood. Yeah, That's I want to see that movie. <laughs> we'll do that movie. <laughs> but you know what? The one thing this movie also has going for it is, you know, and you you uh, you kind of brought it up was with the 
with the we balled and we balled and we balled <laughs> is this this, this uh, which really we, I think we've been derelict and not saying that line more often. The the um, this movie has some great cheesy lines in it. You know, one one of my favorites besides that one is also in the very beginning when they're talking about the the um, they're getting the coroner's report and they're and he's saying that he was killed by extreme exhaustion through um, you know from having sex. And I think it's the uh, sheriff asking, he says, was he fooling around? And the coroner tells him, was he ever? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and there's moments like that in the movie that are just, you know, obviously no one is taking this movie too seriously. You got to love a funny coroner. You know, that's what you want in a coroner is a coroner who's cracking jokes. It's really, really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's fun. It's colorful. It features a bunch Mm -hmm. of really pretty girls getting naked which is fun and all the the scene of them oh we should mention really uh two well i got two things one i want to mention there is a a commonality to it's alive is that i mentioned in in it's alive there's a killer baby cam well here you've got b-girl cam uh where you get to see what it looks like to be a b-girl and of course it's presumably the way it looks like a fly with all the you know kaleidoscopic images which as far as i know is not how actually flies or bees actually see things but nevertheless it's a cool effect because you see all the little heads and that's cool and then the ending the ending of this movie where uh agar breaks in and uh he shoots all the equipment and the b-girls do not even show even the barest competence about how to get out of this. Like they just sort of just stand around and let Agar just shoot the equipment and then everything starts going all to hell. But it's, um, it's kind of a nice, um, that's where the movie, t- I, I, I said earlier that it's really more, more of a sci-fi film, but it does yeah. tip into horror during the final scene where, uh, all the, the smoke is coming and all the crazy fumes that are going off. Cause as, as Agar and Julie escape. And then there's this really, pretty gruesome scene of where he's looking through the door at uh dr harris and like all the weird chemicals start ripping her flesh off and she starts like pulling at her own face and all of a sudden like she's just pulling it's like that scene in poltergeist where she's just pulling all this and it's not it's not super uh gross and it's probably probably had a limited amount of money to do the effect but nevertheless it's kind of a you know she's so gorgeous then all of a sudden she's Mm -hmm. like literally pulling her flesh off her face so it's it's kind of a nice creepy horror movie ending so i kind of like the the bravura of it of just like all right let's just blow everything up and end this (laughs) you know and in a way that actually kind of made me sad because you know i guess the movie did its job in that at that point I was, I was, you know, I was rooting for Dr. Harris. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, was, I was sorry to see her go. She, again, she's, I mean, I will never know whether how much skill Anitra Ford had as an actress, but she certainly had screen presence because, I mean, you just, yeah, your eyes, sure. just, you cannot take your eyes off her when she's on there. And then, uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's maybe it would have worked if, you'd give, if they'd given her more to do. Again, when I saw her in Wonder Woman, I'm like, why isn't this woman Wonder Woman? Yeah. She looks like Wonder Woman. So, uh, so yeah, Invasion of the B-Girls, uh, is, it, is, is it as good as It's Alive? I would say it is not. But it, it is fun in its own way and that it is just a completely grind bin, you know, sleazy, fun Good time with some fun effects, lots of nudity, and just you know, at, at, at like it's only like eighty six minutes. Uh, any any movie that moves at that pace is is, is fun. So it's again, it's a, it makes for a it made for a nice. I watched these both in one night. Mm-hmm, uh, made for a nice double feature. Oh great, yeah, and you know, I would say this movie is if you are having an adult Halloween party, 
Yes. And you're and you're watching you're having movies playing in the background or you're watching a movie with a group of friends. This movie is perfect for that. Yes. Because it is it is just this is the kind of movie you should watch, you know, with a group of your friends. I because agree. Because it's it's crazy. Yeah. Right, you get it. It never, it doesn't linger on too many things. It has a nice, you know, nice punchy thing from scene to scene. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's definitely stressing adult. You do not want yeah. any children watching watching no, this movie. No, so, yeah, so. <laughs> so, so let me ask you, Rob, which would you rather have, mutant baby vision or B girl vision? Oh boy, that's a. <laughs> you know, I mean, the the mutant baby vision seems less debilitating because it's just the slight after image i would imagine getting used to b-girl vision would be really difficult but i I don't know that's a good it's a good question i mean i really can't be a b-girl because i'm a guy but yeah i don't know i i think i gotta go with baby vision just because it just seems like easier to deal with i don't know yeah well i i personally would go with b-girl vision just because i'm assuming that i would be around other b-girls and I want to see that as clearly as possible. That's a good point. <laughs> That's a, and you know they seem they certainly seem to like each other a lot. So maybe if you're oh, a B yeah. girl, you're like this is this is we're having a good time here, girls. <laughs> I don't know. It's good stuff. So <laughs> I I think that is going to do it for our Halloween horror drive-in double feature. feature. Max, thank you so much for suggesting this. I'm so happy that we got a chance to podcast again and to bring back film and water just in time for Halloween. And again, we got a chance to kind of like cover some of the stuff that the Franklins probably would never touch, which is good, <laughs> good for them. They're, they're, they're solid upstanding people and they shouldn't they're, they're, yeah. sully themselves with this kind of material. They're, they're, they're good people. They, they don't need to be on the side of the street. No, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Max and I are over here, like with our, with our trench goods on. Like, right, okay, you want to see a B-girl movie? Okay. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that that is going to do it. So, Max, before we sign off, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the Internet? Uh, they can find me right here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Uh, I have a couple of podcasts. Uh, the the Plastic Cast, which is dedicated to Plastic Man, and The Mirror Factory, which is a literary podcast. And they can find me here, and they can find me on Facebook, Facebook. Uh, Twitter, you know, social media, and just just look for either either one of those two, and uh, you'll find me. All right, absolutely. And uh, for me, of course, I have a bunch of shows on the network as well. Uh, Fire and Film and Water Podcasts. You can subscribe to back episodes of the show uh, on uh, Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. You can find all of the back episodes on our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can, we're always talking movies over on Twitter, which is at Film and Water Pod. And I do need to mention that since uh, the last episode of the Film and Water Podcast, we have now, the network has launched a Patreon. So you can subscribe and keep uh, keep the lights on here at the network over at patreon.com slash W podcast and if different pledges you can unlock for different pledges you can unlock different rewards one of which is you can be name checked on the show of your choice so I have to thank uh, one of our patrons which is Neil Whitney who asked to be mentioned on the film and water podcast so thank you so much Neil thank you for the support and everybody you can go to patreon again patreon.com slash FW podcast and uh, give us a one-time donation or even better yet a monthly donation that would be really great so thanks everybody for listening again you can find these films um in various places on blu-ray <laughs> b girls is in the public domain actually so you can actually find it on youtube as well as on amazon so uh maybe if next time you go to a convention and you see nicholas meyer hand him this blu-ray and get him to sign <laughs> it and see what, see what his reaction is to that so uh that is going to do it. Uh, we will be back next week for a very, very special Film and Water 
that uh, you demanded, and uh, those of you probably can figure out what that means. Uh, oh, yes. to, yeah, yeah, everybody's all excited about that. This is not going to be nearly, this episode is way more fun than that one, I can guarantee it. So, anyway, thanks everybody for listening. Until next week, that's a wrap. All right, you might as well know. We went to dinner at the Flamingo Bar and Grill, and by about 10 o'clock, we were playing kneesies under the table and having dessert like the good old days. And then we went to the motel. And then it happened. What happened? We bawled, and we bawled, and we bawled, till he dropped dead. Touché. Let's go to lunch.